Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. I'm Ben and I'm here with John and Ryan. And today we're going to piggyback a little off last episode where we talked and identified what might be your first area of investment, both to do your first real estate investment and maybe if you're starting to pick up the number of real estate investments you're doing in your surrounding area. And we want to talk about the kind of ways to identify from a numbers and metrics standpoint, whether or not your deal is viable for you. And it's important to recognize, obviously, that finding out and identifying uh, different real estate metrics is just a part, one of the many parts of figuring out whether or not a real estate deal is good for you or not. But nevertheless, we want to take you through it. And so Ryan, why don't we kick off with you? Yeah. So the first thing I will, I guess, just kind of foundationally, the goal of buying investment property for me is twofold. First part is earning cash flow, that is passive income over the duration of the investment. And the the second piece of the puzzle is the equity side, which is, you know, the idea of gaining equity in that property, which is something that you do both by purchasing it right, but also by holding it over the long haul and by paying down the principal of the loan amount. Yeah, I, I think I think that that's a really good way to frame it because you could buy an investment property and make no cash flow, like no rental income, but it could still be a good investment because the property could, for example, appreciate very rapidly, either because you do something to appreciate it, like in a flip, or just because you bought at the right time and the, the broader market appreciates. So I, you know, primarily, at least up until very recently, would consider myself almost exclusively a, a buy and hold investor, like a rental investor. And I almost always you know, pro forma or underwrite or whatever you want to call it, my investments as if there were no appreciation at all. So the power of doing that is you have to be pretty disciplined to make an investment because you're thinking, okay, well, my rents are this, my expenses are this. What if I assume that the value of my property doesn't go up at all? And what if I assume that my rents don't go up at all? Am I still comfortable with the cash flow that I'm making right now? And other investors will say, well, you know, my rents will increase at 2% a year, 3% a year, CPI, inflation, whatever, and my expenses are generally going to be fixed. My mortgage is generally going to be fixed. So my you know, B minus investment right now might turn into an A investment in four or five years, but that's at least not the approach that I've taken personally. I don't know if you guys feel differently, but... Well, I think this highlights a pivotal mistake that a lot of beginning investors make. It's that they assume that the market will continue to appreciate and they forego what would otherwise be sound investment strategy by looking towards cash flow in lieu of the expectation of appreciation down the road. And I think particularly at a time like today, you see this often when we're coming off of, you know, a period of six, seven, eight years of market appreciation. And now the like hype is strong. The mar- the real estate market is at its peak, arguably, um, and has soundly recovered from 2008, 2009, and people are back into thinking that this is going to last forever when the reality is it's not. If you're buying it with the expectation that you're going to make your money when you sell it because it's going to continue appreciating, you're going to find yourself in a bit of trouble at some point down the line. Yeah. And the way to mitigate that, in my view, is to buy with strong cash flow and to buy something that you're confident you can hold on to in perpetuity based on what your cash flow is. Yeah, I, I think like maybe the riskiest investment that I've possibly like ever seen or, or even was, I mean, I didn't consider it for my own portfolio, but I was helping somebody in California, this is maybe a year ago, who was buying a flip or wanted to buy a flip. 
and they had this spreadsheet or this this deck it was like really well done deck it was like 15 slides like really professional and you're looking at the numbers they wanted to buy for something like 400 grand and they're going to put a hundred thousand dollars into it and they thought they're going to sell it for like 850 in a year and i was like yeah you know not that bad investment but if you looked at their numbers like the comps the market comps were all at like 600 grand right now and the underlying assumption was that because those same properties had appreciated by like 40% or something in the past year or two years, that it was going to continue to appreciate by 40%. And it was kind of buried in the number. Like it wasn't really obvious unless you actually click through the comps and you're like, wait, all the comps are like way below what the ARV is. So this person that you know had reached out to me, I was like, look, I mean, if you think it's really going to continue to appreciate as it has already appreciated, like, I guess it's a good investment, but there are no, you know, it's like probably the riskiest type of investment I think you could make. Well, this, this... I, I don't want to deviate too much from what I think should be the focus of this conversation, which is cash flow. But this highlights something that concerns me about investors in general. It's the I think there's a misunderstanding between what drives quote unquote appreciation. There's there's market appreciation, and then there's appreciation that you force by buying something distressed and repositioning the asset, whether that's by bumping rents or by putting capital improvements into the property. And the latter, I would feel pretty comfortable assuming going in because that's something that is within your control. But I don't know that I would ever make an investment purely based on, in my view, speculative market. Yeah, it's, it's like for me, it's micro and macro factors. The micro factors are your house. You can affect the, the value of your house by doing something nice to it, improving it. But the macro factors are like the broader market. And you individually probably are not going to impact the broader market by your improving your real estate. It's going to be factors outside your control. Well, I'll say in, quickly in defense of uh, calculating and embedding appreciation in your underwriting, it is part of the fundamentals, I think, for, for those people out there. They're saying, well, gosh, should I not account for it at all then? You know, it's fair. It's usually standard to account for, let's say, 2% revenue growth and maybe 2% expense growth over a certain period of time. But I think what we're saying is just be cautious about it and especially understand that you need a certain amount of cash on hand at the beginning and throughout the first year of your project to survive and to... Yeah. to sorry, John. No, I mean... What, I think that that's fair. My point is that I wouldn't feel comfortable buying a buy and hold property if mm -hmm. at the moment that I bought it, I wasn't satisfied with the cash flow. I might be happily pleased with the cash flow in two or three years, assuming appreciation or assuming increases in, in rents. But if at the moment that I bought it, it was not cash flowing like I wanted it to, then I wouldn't buy it, even if, if I thought in three or four years it might. And if you're trending income at 2% and expenses at 2%, just as an example, Granted, this applies more so to a commercial property and to commercial underwriting than to, let's say, the underwriting for a two-family investment property. But that ultimately is driving NOI, which is going to be the basis for appreciation in that scenario, rather than just saying, oh, we're buying this at a seven cap, and I think the market's going to be at a five cap in two years. So the NOI is going to stay the same, but I'm going to see a sizable increase in the value of the property because purely based on the fact that I think the market is going to tighten and people are going to buy be buying more aggressively. Which is a lesson, by the way, to, to not just look at these numbers standalone, because you see a lot of people, and when, when I talk to people in real estate, I sometimes say, well, or brokers will throw those numbers at you. Like, look look at a cap rate, look at the IRR, look at the NOI. But, you know, it's 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 a bigger puzzle, and you want to try to take all of these factors into account. Does anyone say NOE? 
for NOI? Is that a thing? I've never heard that. Can I make that a thing? We can make that a thing. I just don't like NO. I just think think that would really, I think that would really get under my skin. (laughs) What what about NOI don't you like? (laughs) Well, about NOE, I mean, it's, you know, there's just NOE. What about NOE, bro? I could, I could, I could maybe get on board with like NOI. No, but no, he just doesn't do it for me. No, no, he's too high class, I think. (laughs) Or everyman gentleman. So I wanted to move the conversation to to maybe two of the main types of deals that we do. I know we want to talk about uh, rental properties. So maybe for starters, I, I would love to actually, now that I'm talking about this out loud, talk about some of our methodology for flips. For starters, when we're looking at two, three, and four families, I think it's important for listeners to understand how we identify those those properties and whether or not they're worth taking the leap. So we talked in the last episode about identifying the geographic location. Okay, once you've identified your property, I think the first thing that there's a little bit of a misperception, specifically for newer investors, is how much cash you actually need on hand when you go into a deal. You know, a lot of people see an investment of $100,000 and think, great, I just need the $10,000 down payment for a 10% DP. But there's a lot more equity required, I think, than a lot of people realize or understand going into a deal. Um, And we talk about that a lot. So for example, if you're planning on buying a property and renovating the property over the first, let's let's say, four or five months, there are holding costs, fixed expenses that are associated as part of that purchase. And so on top of the $10,000 down payment and on top of the closing costs, which might include uh, origination, depending on the points uh, affiliated with your loan or legal fees, which we talk about that are associated with with putting together the necessary documentation to transfer the deal and, and close the deal. Um, you also have taxes and insurance payments that you're going to have to make consistently on your property before you generate even $1 of income. And so my first recommendation, once you've identified that property for listeners is understand exactly how much is the total equity required even outside the down payment before you move forward and cake that in to what you're going to be making and your calculation moving forward on whether or not it's a good deal for you. Yeah, I think one mistake people make is they they say, okay, I have $100,000 cash. I know that generally speaking, the kind of norm in the mortgage space is to be able to put 25% down. Therefore, I have $400,000 in buying power because $100,000 as a 25% down payment is gives you the ability to buy a $400,000 property. As you just alluded to, that the reality is is not the case. Um, there, there are circumstances where your equity requirement can be limited a little bit more to just what your down payment requirement is. And that's that's generally if you're buying something that's turnkey, something that's already rented and something on which you'll be collecting rental income from day one. But in a lot of instances, particularly if you're trying to drive value, you're going to be dealing with maybe getting tenants out. You're going to be dealing with some vacancy. You're going to need some money set aside to do some repairs or some renovations. Um, and then you're going to need to allocate a few weeks, maybe a month or two to actually getting the property tenanted and to get to the point where you are quote unquote stabilized and collecting rents. That is the most common misconception, I think, for newer investors coming in, just understanding all the the kind of cash required. I know when I've talked to people, they say, oh, you know, either, even uh, from from becoming uh, maybe even institutional investors to house hacking, they just don't have a full appreciation for how much cash is required on hand for that first investment. So, oh, sorry. Well, one thing I actually wanted to point out on that front is it can be really sexy to look for those kinds of like, quote unquote, value add plays where you can buy something buy a three family with three tenants in there who are each paying $900 a month when you know that the market rents on that unit are $1,200 a month. But if you if you don't properly account for the downtime that you're going to have with each of those units, 
the upside is a little less attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that I, I oftentimes will encourage other investors to do and something that I should probably practice a little bit more often in my own, uh, on our own projects is to maybe stagger the vacancies. So if you have those three tenants in there, rather than, ha- rather than going from having a fully occupied building to a fully vacant building and to have three units to renovate at the same time and three, uh, and then ultimately three vacancies to fill at the same time, whenever the units come online to stagger them and say, okay, unit one, she really wants to get out because she's looking to move anyway. This is just a good time for her to get out. Unit two and three are a little bit more flexible. I'll keep unit two and three there. We'll work something out where they're here for a few more months or we'll put them on like a a three month lease or Mm -hmm. whatever the case may be. And then we'll do those units one by one. It'll make the the construction a little bit more manageable because you're just doing, maybe you're just doing like a cosmetic renovation. You don't need to do anything that's uh, that pertains to the whole building. You're not, you know, rerunning plumbing entirely, or you're not redoing the entire electrical system. So that's one way to mitigate the the burden of sinking cash in every like month after month because you'll still have maybe two of the three units paying. And I think that's a particularly important point because when you're underwriting your deal, oftentimes people want to just put in whatever the market rent is, and it's really important to understand that even if there is a certain amount of time it takes where you know, which is hard to know, but if you even knew that you know eight months down the road, nine months down the road, you can stabilize at market rents. There is a period of, of time, whether it be because of what Ryan alluded to, getting uh, uh, entrenched tenants out or having to put up with uh, maybe below market rents in order to to expedite this process and maybe not have to go through something like an eviction, that you're probably not going to be generating those rents from the word go even after renovation. So, I, you know, one of the things to, to that point I, I wanted to talk about was sort of the beginning of the underwriting process. And and I know this is a lot of what I do for for Ryan and John. So so I guess for, for a smaller deal, I think one of the first things that's important to do is, is try to properly... Well, the first thing you want to do is look at your comps, right? And we kind of talked about that in the context of finding your geographic location. So I'm going to move forward from that and talk more about uh, your revenue, particularly as it pertains to rent. I mean, it's... Sorry, John. No, I was just saying, maybe we can frame it in the context of explaining some of the terms that real estate investors use like cap rate, cash on cash, IRR. I think that the cap rate is sort of a unique real estate term that people don't fully, fully understand. Or or maybe it's better to talk about cash flow. I I don't know how you guys feel strongly about either one, but so cap rate is very broadly speaking, net operating income divided by the value of the asset that you buy. So normally people look, so net operating income itself is a little bit of a term of art in the real estate context. Generally, net operating income is the revenue that you're generating from rents or from however you use your property, minus the expenses that you're generating or that your property is accruing at any given time. Normally, you don't consider debt service in the context of calculating it. So you like your mortgage payment, interest, principal would not be part of the calculation. And investors talk about cap rate. Normally, they say like X cap or X number. So like a six cap would be a 6% cap rate. 7 cap B, a 7% cap rate. And one of the joys of using cap rates to analyze properties, even if you're looking at a smaller, like a two-family or a three-family property, is that you can compare properties of different asset classes almost um, using the same metric. So if you have a two-family property in, say, northern New Jersey, and you know that's a 7 cap for some reason, and you have a two-family property in New Haven, and that's a 9 cap, well, you've you know, essentially analyzed away all the differences and all of the details, and you're just looking at one number to compare it at a high level. I was going to say that the general theory behind that is, first and foremost, the reason that I 
I believe at least the reason that cap rate is exclusive of debt service, which is in this context, a mortgage payment. The reason that cap rates are exclusive of that is, is that your financing is more specific to the specific investor and to that investor's strategy than to the property itself. So the cap rate is supposed to be a means of analyzing the specific property from investor A to investor B, and that should not be clouded by whatever your investment strategy is, like something like cash on cash return would be, or even IRR, or return on equity, or whatever other metric you would look at. And I was only just going to give a caveat to say that while the cap rate is a very effective metric to compare deal by deal, it's important to, I think, recognize maybe two things. One, especially when you're working on smaller properties, oftentimes in, in more distressed areas, oftentimes the cap can be inflated just because the numbers you're playing with are smaller. So when you're talking about what you're netting versus the value of the property, right? If that number is smaller, generally speaking, the number, the cap rate you're going to see could be eight plus versus maybe like a four to eight in a more institutional area. Yeah, it's a it's a good point because when you're looking at smaller properties, you realize that say you're looking at a two family property, a property with two apartments. If you, for example, miscalculate the rent by five percent, that will tremendously impact your bottom line. Or if you say, well, I'm assuming that you know it's a two family, but one of the units, um, you know, is a lot smaller, or one of the units I uh, just I can't rent for five months. Uh, of the year, that has an enormous impact on your bottom line. But if you had a 50 family building and you had one unit that you couldn't rent for five months, well, it doesn't really have a huge impact. Um, so another way to look at it is, say you have a two family building and you have two boilers and one of the boilers breaks, that's a pretty significant expense that that'll very significantly impact your bottom line versus if you have a 50 family house, 50 unit apartment, and you have some you know, issue that say costs five thousand dollars, which would be like the cost of a new boiler. That's not going to really significantly impact your bottom line. So it's uh, it, it gets into a larger question about why do large you know hedge funds and whatever else invest in very large multifamily properties as opposed to like a two family property, and why the management challenges of owning a portfolio of say ten two family properties might be different than a twenty unit property, but. Generally speaking, one idea is because the sensitivity to expenses and incomes are way different on a two versus 50 unit property. It's also important to bear in mind that these numbers are generally based off of pro formas, they're, they're estimates. So on paper, it, if someone is talking about a property, buying a property at a 10 cap, they're generally talking about uh, based on their projections. And those projections, as John just alluded to, will vary a lot more for a smaller property than a larger property. Year one, you may see on a two-family, if you get hit with a lot of maintenance, you may effectively operate at a five cap. And then year two, once you're stabilized, if you have no tenants move out, you might be looking at an 18 cap. So it's important to understand the volatility in these numbers and, and to ensure that your expectations are in line with that. The other thing I wanted to point out is that the cap rate itself is effectively the unlevered rate, rate of return on the asset. So if you're looking at a, a 10 cap, what that means is if you buy a property, if you buy that property for a million dollars at a 10 cap with no debt whatsoever, so you don't get a loan on the property, that means that you should, if it if it performs at a 10 cap, you should earn a 10% rate of return on your money. And the idea is that if you're able to get a loan on top of, to get a loan on the property, the cost of that loan is going to be less than the cap rate, which is going to increase your returns because you'll be buying 
you'll be borrowing money at, let's say, a rate of 5% interest, and the property will be, quote unquote, earning money at a 10% rate. So when you look at your blended rate of return, it's going to be much higher than the 10% cap rate that you would be seeing if you bought it all cash. And to bookend that the conversation on cap, to both of their points, right? If you as an individual investor are looking at a smaller project and you see an eight cap and you see a seven cap, it's important to, again, understand that there are other factors in play. So for example, maybe the the, the property with an eight cap is generating more cash in the next year, two years, even three years, but the seven cap property might be new construction, which for whatever reason is taking time to, to bring in tenants or what have you, who knows what the reasons are, might be in better shape for the future. And that's where understanding uh, appreciation and, and and also not looking too closely at only one metric can be really yeah, important. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's, it's a fair point. I mean, you, with, with all these metrics, like uh, cap rate, cash on cash, you can say this IRR, about every metric. Yeah, yeah you're, you, you can make amazing returns, but you could have like a, like a 15 cap and only be quote unquote cash flowing like $200 a month. Yeah. Um, and, and you're... Because it doesn't take into account the debt. Or, well, it, it also might not take into account the property's worth 30 grand. Right, so. right. It's different than absolute returns. But the other, the other thing is that these, I think John alluded to this earlier, this, this is way more of an art than a science. So you can have, you can have two experienced brokers or two experienced developers underwriting a, a similar de- or an identical deal. And one could come out to a seven cap, one could have a nine cap. And when you're dealing with larger numbers, that's a huge variance. And it could be for various reasons. It could be because one of them maybe has more experience managing that asset class. One of them may see a way to decrease expenses or increase income. But I, I think that's a good segue to the next topic, which is how you arrive at the NOI and and ultimately um, how you underwrite cash flows. Yeah. Well, very broadly, I want to say cap rate is not the only way to analyze property. So there are, there's cash and cash return. There's, I would say, monthly cash flow, which is maybe not like a, like a a, a formal, a formal yeah. you know analysis, but it's just a way to look at it. And then there's IRR, which is basically was not relevant to, not particularly useful to calculate unless you're very aware of what your exit might be and when it might be. But I mean, we could talk very briefly about what those are before we go into this. But I mean, they, they, they all use the same inputs, but they have different results for you. Um, cash on cash return is very broadly um, a measurement of this sort of it's uh, cash on cash return displays the it's the relationship between the cash flow so the amount of money that you are clearing on an annual basis and the amount of cash that you have invested in a particular property the straightest way to look at this is for something that's stabilized so say you buy a a turnkey 10 family that's already rented and already stabilized and your plans upon purchasing it are to just kind of like continue operations as they are. So let's say you buy it at a 10 cap. So you put 25% down. So you put $250,000 down, obtain a mortgage for 750 dollars uh, with closing costs and whatever reserves you need to put in. Maybe you're all in at $300,000 invested into the property and you're cash flowing $3,000 a month. The way to calculate the cash on cash return in this context would be the $3,000 a month over 12 months. That's $36,000 a year divided by your $300,000 invested in the property. It's a little over a 10% return cash on cash, which is, I would say, pretty good for 
pretty good depending on you know risk like adjusted yeah. for risk so and your strategy and the area and the whatnot. advantage of cash on cash returns as ryan alluded to is that it takes into consideration um debt and leverage uh and so your cash and cash return can change substantially depending on so one common strategy in buy and hold investing that we can get into would be the you know the burr strategy or whatever you want to call it which would be buy renovate rent refinance and then repeat. So the idea is that you buy a property, you have a fair amount of equity in the property to begin with, you spend money on renovations, which is even more equity than you rent it out, and then you refinance. Refinance meaning that your property has appreciated in value because of all the work that you've done for it, and maybe you got a good deal anyways, and you take a bunch of equity out. That will very, very significantly impact your cash and cash return because all of a sudden you go from, say, having you know, 100 grand hypothetically in the property to maybe having no money in the property or 10 grand in the property. So you can have like, you know, quote unquote, infinite cash and cash returns because maybe you even got money back just to buy the property. So those are, that will not necessarily show up in a, in a cap rate analysis and it will maybe have negative impacts in a cash flow sense, because now your basis and now your the value of your property is higher and your mortgage rate is going to be higher and et cetera, et cetera. Your, your mortgage amount is going to be higher, but it will impact in a huge way your cash and cash returns. And I, I think it's just important quickly to note that the, the distinguishing difference here from an actual calculation standpoint for people who are underwriting their individual deals, right, is for example, cap rate, which is dividing your NOI by the value of the property versus here where you're, I like to turn it net cash after debt because you're also accounting for your debt service divided by the total cash invested, um, which gives gives you a different, a slightly different metric and a different look uh, when you talk about sort of your blended results, assumptions and returns for how you want to approach analyzing the deal. Yeah, just to add a little more color to uh, the last example, the so you buy, if you buy that same property at a 10 cap and you buy it all cash, 10 cap means that you're effectively going to see a 10% cash on cash return as well. Whereas in this scenario with leverage, the $36,000 a year cash in cash flow on a $300,000 investment yields about a 12% return. So the idea there is you're using leverage, you're using debt to juice your cash on cash returns. To John's point before about the Burr strategy, the idea there is to achieve those kind of infinite returns, but that also kind of highlights the deficiencies of cash on cash return as a metric, because what that doesn't necessarily take into account is when you receive the cash. It, it doesn't. It's agnostic to the timing of cash flows. So IRR is one metric that a lot of investors like to use because that quantifies in some way whether you're receiving that refinance cash, whether you're like pulling your equity back out in month one or in month 13 or in month nine or not until the very end of the project in year five or whatever it may be. So that's going to be a, a huge driver of returns when you're looking at things from an IRR standpoint. And IRR is the easiest, you know, metric, I think, to compare real estate returns with returns from other types of investments. So cap rate is a pretty generally only used in the real estate context. Um, cash and cash return, I suppose, could be used in different contexts, but I've never, never really seen it used outside of the real estate context personally. But um, IRR, you could say, well, I, I can make X percent on my you know, my, my bond or in returns from the stock market or on my treasury bill or whatever. And or, I investing can in that. A, or investing in a private equity fund investing in, in a, any space. or Investing in a private in equity fund, or. absolutely. Or, I, you know, I can compare it to what I would make on a, a property investment. So IRR, and the only way to calculate IRR truly is retrospectively after you've already 
disposed of the asset or received all the cash flow you're going to receive from it. But it is possible to prospectively guess that, well, I could receive this cash flow at this point and I could exit the property at this amount at this point. So when we do that type of analysis, which we do for the purposes of our private equity fund, we just guess and say, well, I think we're going to exit the property. What, what would it be if we exit the property in a year and two years, three years, whatever? Educated guess, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and then to, to tie this back in a little bit with how it applies to, I, I think, most of what we do, this, the kinds of rental property that are in the two to four family space. Frankly, in my opinion, it's overkill to do a real deep dive into the numbers in this way um, for, let's say, a two family rental, because as John alluded to before, there's so much variance between, between what your quote unquote cap rate is going to look like, between what your IRR is going to look like, um, and so on and so forth. When you're dealing with such a small property and when you're dealing with such swings from either a vacancy or from some kind of repair and maintenance or capex. So the way that I actually like to approach most of these is to kind of, I guess, more subjectively weigh what the cash flow is against what the equity is against what the kind of quote unquote risk and like effort required is for any given deal. Um, so just to give you an example of how, how that might look, uh, we have some stuff. We have some property in Montclair, New Jersey, which is uh, an affluent suburb with a nice downtown, big commuter population. We also have rentals in a rental property in Newark, New Jersey, which I would say has a much different reputation. So, high level, I might say I'm looking for I'm looking to clear a thousand dollars a month on this on any given rental property purchase because if it's anything below that then it's A, not worth my time, and B, I don't feel safe enough knowing that there are going to be, there are going to be weaker months, weaker years, and I want to make sure that I have enough cushion to weather any kind of storm. But that's also factored in with where the property is located. So if I'm in Newark, let's say, I know that that is not as strong of a real estate market, and in a downturn, values there are going to suffer and there's going to be, you know, not as much of a pool of buyers. And long term, it's a different tenant profile. It's a different, um, I would say, like operational burden from a management standpoint. Whereas something in Montclair, you're dealing with a different class of tenant. Um, you're de generally dealing with higher income earners. So, uh, in my opinion, you have a, a greater likelihood of achieving some kind of rent growth there because you're dealing with a, a population that is generally seeing wage growth, which is ultimately what's going to support rent growth. And then from an operational standpoint, while you may be dealing with, as John and I often kind of joke about, you're, you're dealing with the kind of people who don't want to be plunging a toilet or changing a light bulb. So sometimes you have to provide a little bit more of a white glove service when it comes to management. But at the end of the day, you have less concerns that they're not going to be able to pay their rent or that they're going to stiff you on the rent or that they're going to trash your place when they, when they leave. So there, there is an economic value to that. Yeah, it, it brings up a larger point maybe we can get into right now, which is what are the inputs to all of these you know, forms of analysis? And I would say the very, the very top level input would be rent or rental income. That's generally the you know, revenue or income side of the, the equation. So why don't we talk a little bit about how to figure out what rents are and how to figure out vacancy rates? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, just very maybe not quickly, but base level, right? Once you when you're looking at an area, you know, it, it's sort of the same uh, way that you're identifying from last episode where you're going to invest. The next step would be to look at comps to try to determine what the average rents are in the area for your specific property and units. So I think it's worth mentioning. I know this sounds simple, but obviously there's a difference between renting studios versus one bedrooms versus two bedrooms versus three bedrooms, etc. And even within that context, uh, you want to know: okay, are you renting individual units? Are you renting uh, the, the property out as as a whole home, uh, so single family versus multifamily, et cetera. And then also take into account what is the uh, unit mix within your property. So some units, you, I think a lot of people say, oh, you either rent two bedrooms or you rent three bedrooms. Well, uh, just as a case in point, I was looking at a property the, the other day in New Haven, and these two properties were all one one bedroom and one three bedroom. So understanding your unit mix as well is important. So once you determine uh, through comps, et cetera, uh, what your average rents are going to be for those different types of units, uh, then you want to take into account, I think, any other factors that might make you revenue. So for example, does your unit have parking space? And if it does, do you rent that out to tenants? So if you're renting out, you can additionally add those types of revenue streams to, at least I like to, to your total revenue as it pertains to rental income, because I consider that, again, you're probably paying a parking space by month. And then as John and Ryan alluded to, you want to try to discount that rental by a certain vacancy percentage, which is really just a guess to how long per unit would any given unit on, on in a given month or in a given year uh, be vacant. Because as we know, every day you have a unit that's vacant is a day you're losing money. Um, So it's very, very important to not just include a vacancy rate, but to try to be as close and as accurate as you possibly can. I think it's it's really important. What you said shouldn't be glossed over. It's important to include a vacancy rate because a lot of people will think, oh, I have a great, you know, that the rental demand is really high in my area and I'm always going to find a tenant. That may be true. But if you have a tenant leave uh, who just doesn't want to renew their lease, maybe you can line up a tenant who's going to come in right after that person leaves, but more than likely, you're probably going to have to get in there, paint the unit, do something, fix it up, whatever you have to do, so that at the absolute minimum, you're going to spend half a month, maybe more likely a month just to get the unit turned around. So even in a very, very high demand market, you might still have a month of vacancy, you know, even per year. So at the very minimum, I would say include a vacancy rate in some way, and then adjust it upwards if you think that the rental demand is lower or other factors are at play. Not to get too in-depth in, in depth here and to kind of lose sight of the, the topic at hand, which is understanding the income and expense, but there's also a difference between physical vacancy and economic vacancy. So economic vacancy is also intended to take into account factors like not just how much money you're losing because a unit is vacant, but also oftentimes it's kind of embedded. It also has like a bad debt number embedded in there, um, which would be bad a bad debt write-off from an accounting standpoint is the amount that you are foregoing because of an inability to collect. So if you're in an area where you have, if you have a 20-unit building in just about any market, it's going to vary depending on where you are, but chances are you're going to run into tenants who are not going to pay um, we're dealing this, with this right now on one of our properties, arguably multiple tenants in one of the properties. We have one eviction ongoing, which means obviously that tenant is not paying. We have another tenant who is, I, I would say, paying habitually late and is uh, somewhat troubling to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, wow. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's a generous way of putting I, I thought, it. I thought we were a white glove service. Guys. <laughs> but this, this uh, separate issue, but this actually yeah. highlights the the importance of, of screening your own tenants and, and not inheriting tenants. Um, right. To be clear, we didn't choose any of these tenants. Right. They 
they came with the property. They, were, they, were they, cho- they chose us. Right. <laughs> so the economic vacancy kind of takes the, takes these things into account. Um, the other thing I like to think about is what does a four percent vacancy mean? So that in most contexts, a four four percent vacancy is indicative of a of an extremely strong market. But when you take when you think about it in the way that John just described, four percent economic vacancy essentially translates to I think about two weeks of lost rent, quote unquote, uh, over the course of a year. So if you think about one full month, uh, one full month of vacancy is about 8% of the year. So if you divide that in half, that's 4%. So essentially what that means is if you're underwriting a 4% economic vacancy, that means that you're expecting that on average, you're going to be seeing about two months of lost rent over the course of the year, which when you think about the logistics and you think about things from a practical standpoint, if you have a tenant leave, I would say two weeks to have one from the time that one tenant leaves to the time that you clean the apartment to the time that you make any repairs to the time that you lease it out to the time that that person moves in is extremely optimistic and probably a best case scenario. And it, it, it's another, you know, a lot of investors rag on rent control and rent stabilized buildings, which is, uh, you know, a whole different topic. Maybe but, warranted. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that you will have in a rent controlled or rent stabilized building, assuming it's controlled or stabilized below market rents is that you're probably not going to have a lot of vacancies um, as long as you pick tenants that are going to pay rent. So um, just, you know, other, other a lot of things yeah. go into the rents and the vacancy rate. Yeah. So I guess just, just to sort of go back to, you know, the general income and expense, right? So let's just say your total revenue, including rents and any other affiliated income streams uh, added up to $100,000 and you had a 10% vacancy. So that's $10,000. So your, your net revenue from rent, if you proportion that all together is about $90,000. And then what you tend to want to do is go through your expenses. So um, obviously there are closing costs affiliated with purchasing a property and then there's holding as well. Well, but for the purpose of just rentals, probably want to start by talking about fixed and variable expenses. Um, so for your fixed expenses, as an example, you're, you're talking about expenses that no matter what happens, you know, through, through what's, what's the expression, like hell and high water, uh, you're going to have to pay these. And those things include taxes, insurance, your mortgage payment. I tend to like to include utilities as a fixed expense, because even if you're uh, passing through a lot of those expenses to tenants, you're going to have to pay some proportion of that, or at least that amount of money is owed to somebody all the time. I just want to, uh, I just want to point out that yeah. if, if we're looking at if we're looking at deriving an NOI, the mortgage expense should be. While that is quote unquote gonna, fixed, it should yeah. be kept out of the I, equation. And I, at the end, I, I was going to maybe make the I caveat. Figured. I know, I know, that I know he is, doesn't believe me, but I, no, 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 I, I promise. <laughs> this is this is how like, when you send us when, when you send know, us your like deal summary write ups. I know a, that you have it in there, but yeah. I know that when I when I think about it or when I think about it in this context for an NOI for NOI purposes, yeah. it's well, a little yeah. tricky. One, one like funny. major caveat, one major thing to say is that everything uh, that we're talking about is yearly. Just people gonna get confused. All these calculations are done on a yearly basis, not a monthly basis or whatever. And and this is something that I that I took from from. Ryan and John, but oftentimes what we'll do is is we'll separate the periods, even refinancing aside, let's just take that out of the picture, where we'll calculate the cost, right, equity required and just general affiliated costs up until the time that we lease up and then extrapolate out over the course of a year to see what the property looks like stabilized for one full year, which may or may not be helpful for, for you guys out there. But putting that aside, um, once you calculate your fixed expenses and we'll take out the, make sure to take out the mortgage for the NOI, Thank you, ben. Uh, you look at your variable expenses. And these are expenses that can change year to year. So things well, like one, I, one, just to touch, if, if we're, we're going to talk about utilities as a fixed expense. So utilities are 
I think a, a big a big one to think about. A lot of investors grossly miscalculate what the utility costs will be, and they also change depending on the nature of the property. So, as an example, I used before, you might have a property that has separate heat and hot water. That is not super uncommon for smaller multifamily properties, particularly in the Northeast. So each property has their own boiler or furnace or whatever, and they each have their own, say, hot water heater. In that case, you generally, as a landlord, will pass the cost of heating and hot water through to the tenant because there's a separate you know, meter and system for each tenant. In a larger building or in a different building, you might have one central heating system, like one boiler or one hot water heater. And in that case, you as the landlord will almost always pay for the cost of heat or hot water. You maybe in a good, great world would be able to in some way pass that cost along to the tenant. But if you're looking at comps um, online, oftentimes it's not entirely clear if the unit has you know, heat and hot water included in the unit or the landlord pays it or whatever. Having said all that, uh, that calculus is significant also because even though the tenants say pay for heat and hot water, you as the landlord are still responsible for servicing the boiler and the hot water heater. So you might, though you might gain on the fact that you don't have to pay those types of utilities every month, every year for tenants that pay their own heat and hot water, you might lose because now all of a sudden you have, say, three or four boilers to maintain as opposed to one boiler. And the cost of replacing a boiler for a four-family unit and the cost of a boiler for a one-family unit might be a little bit different, but it's not way different. So there are pluses and minuses to having separate utilities in larger buildings, particularly in the Northeast. It will almost always be the case that, that there'll be one central heating unit and one central one hot water. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that. Yeah, I, I, I've, often, I've seen them separated pretty, pretty really? often. And, and even when there's, even Where when they're not invest? separated, <laughs> even when they're not separated, um, I think a lot of landlords have transitioned to a rub system, a ratio ratio utility billing system, I think it's called, where they essentially pass the costs through to the tenants and yes. kind of build them, build them back in a pro rata fashion. So regardless of whether they are metered separately or not. That's and this, this is from, by the way, I mean, we, we got John here. I'm biased. I'm a top property manager, probably in Hudson County. I mean, I, I take that. It's so important. And I'm glad you stopped me there because it really is important. Like all of these calculations matter. You know, if you, and like John uh, alluded to earlier as well, it's like, okay, let's say you pass, even if you pass through all your expenses, if a boiler goes down, you are responsible as the landlord for that payment. So you also want to allocate certain capital resources to those emergency yeah, situations. The overarching point is just understand the utility expenses. Um, they're also like, hidden utility costs in Hudson County, as you just mentioned, Ben, you have to pay sewerage costs, which is not the case in other counties in New Jersey and across the country. So Mayor Stack, we're totally okay with it. Really, I, I promise. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, the North Hudson Sewerage Authority, one of the greatest utilities on earth. Um, so Take it to the bank. It, one way to figure it out is just ask I mean, you could ask the the prior owner, the chances of, you know, for a smaller multifamily property, them having great records to give you are low, but conceivably, or you could just ask another property investor in the area, like, hey, can I just see your utility bill for a two or a three family property? Um, you may be able to get, you may be able to get it from the utility itself too. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not, <laughs> I mean, you could try. Um, 
but yeah, so when you're doing your due diligence, make sure to figure out the number because even saying a two family property, say you're off by a thousand dollars for what utility costs are per year, like that's a lot. Yeah. Um, that's going to really impact your bottom line. Yeah. I mean, especially where our, our numbers are. So when you're talking about, a, again, multifamily properties, any discrepancy, even you may think, oh, it's just $500, $600. That makes a big difference on your bottom line. And it makes a big difference in the totality of calculation you have for a lot of the metrics that we talked about, which I'll, I'll get into when we finish the, the breakdown. So just again, to quickly run through it, we talked about some of our fixed expenses. So just some of the variable expenses. Again, these are expenses that would change potentially year to year as you're you're uh, managing your property. So things like admin expenses, which might be, I don't know, fees affiliated with filing taxes or any kind of documentation you have to go back and forth that you have to pay for. Um, things like supplies, things like maintenance costs, something that's also really, really important to try to allocate correctly, probably best to be conservative when it comes to, to maintenance costs. And also very important, which we're very familiar with, a management fee right? If most people aren't, well, I would say in the multifamily uh, sphere, you see this more often, especially if you are, for example, a house hacker, but most people are going to pay an outside company or source to manage their property. So is there a management fee? And if so, what is the percentage of your gross rent that you're paying out to that manager? So is it, it's usually, I think, somewhere between 5 and 8%. I know for a lot of the properties, John, that you work on, you charge 8%, uh, but that depends on some sort of yeah, ratio. Yeah, I think it's probably between like 5 and 12%. Oh, it, okay. really, yeah. it really depends on yeah. the market and the property for sure. Right. Um, and and I, it could be a lot lower even for... For say a multi-hundred unit building, it could be like three percent lower, yeah. Right. Yeah. three to three to five in that yeah. space. I would say is more more I'm, so the norm. But the uh, as a, as a practice, uh, whether you plan to self manage or not, it's it's good to put a management fee in there when you're underwriting a property because whether it's because you continue to acquire and kind of grow out of self managing or because you grow tired of self managing, it's highly likely that at some point you may consider hiring or outsourcing property management. And if you do that, you want to know that your property can support it. Yeah. Yeah. And management is a whole other sphere that we can get into at some other point. But just to touch on it very briefly, beyond the, the numbers that we're talking about, just having either the ability yourself to manage the property or having a good property manager is very, very, very important and very, very valuable. And I have used third-party property managers that have been great, some that have been really bad. And it it is a large component that goes into buying a property and thinking about how to rent it out. And even to our previous conversation before about location, sometimes just having a good property manager that you can trust in an area could, could be a factor as right. to why you might right. want to invest there. And, and you know, one other side too is if you buy a, say, two-family property in the middle of nowhere or someplace where you don't have an infrastructure set up, it's going to be hard to find, it's often going to be hard to find a property manager who's just going to want to manage your two-family property. A lot of property managers are interested in managing portfolios, bigger properties, you know, whatever it might be. So just take that into consideration if you're investing not in your own backyard where you can't actually manage it yourself. How, like, think about how could I find a good property manager? How much is that going to cost? How hard it's going to be, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that property manager is also likely going to be your gateway to a good plumber or a good electrician or a good carpenter or a good pest control company. And, and that's going to truly inform your experience, probably more so than anything outside of buying the property. Yeah. Right? Like for some properties that I manage, um, it's really like I am essentially the owner of the property because everything, you know, for that property 
will flow through me. Like I might be responsible for uh, making sure that the utilities are paid, that the taxes are paid, collecting rent, you know, have access to the bank account, everything else. So to, to the tenants of that property, I am the landlord. I manage the property. They have no idea that I don't personally own it or have any equity interest in it. So think about that too, is, you know, is this property manager, the sort of person that you want your tenants to deal with all the time um, as like the face of the property to, to, to really manage and operate the, the logistics of the property? Yeah. And I think, again, to, to their point, it's it's worth first kicking into your calculation just for for both conservative purposes, but also for purposes of it's likely that you'll end up using a property manager if this is one of your first investments. And particularly if you're going somewhere further away from you. So if you're talking about an hour drive, two hour drive, or even further, it really is essential, but also understanding that, that it may, while it may be difficult to find a, a property manager for uh, an area that you're unfamiliar with, that it can be essential and can also actually in the long run cost aside, help increase, help juice your bottom line. Because if they're the ones consistently handling maintenance issues, collecting rent, that can be a boon for your for your total uh, uh, rental revenue. And so uh, the only thing left to do once you have your uh, revenue, income, and expenses uh, is to do the calculations to get your your final assumption. So you know, for us, these are smaller deals. So we can talk in a sec about what the Maybe uh, one last thing on expenses, yes, not to totally gloss over it, but would be, I think you mentioned too, that repairs and sort of yeah, maintenance. I was just going to highlight the same thing. Please, um, I'm doing the overhead. You guys yeah. get into the, the weeds. So that, that's another thing that property investors will often miscalculate or under or overestimate. The, the, the way, so I'm thinking, <laughs> I have a great, uh, great is, is maybe not the right word. There is a property manager in New Haven that we've used in the past. He's a real character, a great guy. And, um, he was trying to sell me a property a couple of years ago that he'd owned for about um, seven or eight years. And so he was walking through a nice property, four or five family property. And he said, uh, I, I said to him, like, why do you want to sell this property right now? I said, I juiced it. And <laughs> I think we've talked about this on a previous yeah. episode before. I think so. Yeah. No, no, but to talk about it again. It's, it's very it's relevant here. Yeah. Well, and if you haven't caught that episode. Uh, Just so, means we're listening, John. Thanks. Um, so yeah, he said he, he juiced it, which means that he had, so the, the, everything that you have in a property has an economic life, a useful life, however you want to describe it, including the property itself. But aspects of the property that have defined life terms would be the roof, your boiler, your hot water heater, um, maybe some of your fixtures in your bathroom. These are the things that you install and you know that at some point you're going to have to replace them. So maybe like a cheap roof might last you 10 years. Um, a hot water heater is probably not going to last you more than 10 or 15 years. So what he meant in that context was that he put money into the property day one that he bought it. And now seven, eight, nine years later, all of the stuff that he put in now needs to be replaced. So all of a sudden there's going to be a big cost to replace the roof and the hot water heater and the boiler and whatever else. The way to look at that in the context of what I was saying with with repairs and maintenance is that those expenses that you have to pay for a hot water heater or whatever are not going to be be born every year. Like in year two, year three, year four, you're not going to have to pay money to replace a hot water heater, but you are going to have to pay a lot of money after year 10. So the way to to underwrite it or to think about it is, well, I'm going to look at that expense and then just divide 
that total expense by the number of years that I have. So I might put in my budget that my repairs and maintenance are $2,500 a year, but there might be two or three years where I don't pay a dollar to that or pay $10. And there might be one year where I pay $8,000. So over the, the lifespan, over the three or four year period of time that I'm looking, the average might be that number. But in any given year, it might not be that exact number. And it's important if you look at a property, you know, say the owner might say, oh, I didn't spend any money in maintenance last year. Like, okay, great. That doesn't mean that the cost that you should underwrite is $0. Mm-hmm. It just means that maybe, you know, nothing bad happened that year. But next year, you know, this year I had to replace a boiler for one of our properties. It cost me a boiler and a hot water heater. It cost me $7,000. But last year I didn't have to do anything. So it cost me five bucks. There, I'd like to highlight the distinction between repairs and maintenance and capital expenditures. So re- repairs and maintenance uh, are generally classified as maintenance of existing fixtures, maintenance, maintenance, uh, overall maintenance of the property. So that might be things like going and unclogging a toilet or patching a hole in the drywall from somebody who took down a picture, little things like that, that are just more so upkeep than a true replacement. Um, I think a lot of the things that John alluded to are more so classified as capital expenditures, which also, as he alluded to, have a predefined lifespan and it's just an inevitability that those are going to be concerned uh, that those are going to have to be addressed. So when you're looking at your quote unquote repairs and maintenance number, it's important to take both sides of the equation into account. And oftentimes this this, this also comes back to the, the idea of applying context to your investment. So if you're buying something that you're maybe getting a little bit of a deal on, but it's an older house, it hasn't been renovated, needs a little bit of love, needs some cleanup, maybe hasn't been lived in for a little bit. You can you can bet that in the first year or two, you're going to find out where the leaks are. You're going to find out where the warts of the property are. And you're going to be spending on both repairs and maintenance and probably some capital expenditure items if you didn't pick them up immediately anyway. And you know, on the same token, you may buy something that is perfectly, t- that is turnkey and that was renovated right. And it may be reasonable for you to assume that in year one, year two, year three, your repair and maintenance number is going to be pretty low because most of those items that John alluded to earlier have already been addressed and you shouldn't need to do deal with them again. I would say that John, I, you also, I know manage a property that was recently renovated, but was not renovated to the standard that one would expect. And so despite the fact that it's renovated, I think there's been a fair amount of expenditures on the repairs and maintenance side just to address some subpar renovations. Yeah. I, I think another way to look at it, I think we even talked about this in a, a previous episode is that even though there are events that happen infrequently, it doesn't mean that they'll never happen. So even if you have a property that's been recently renovated and everything is okay, you could still have a pipe that will leak. Um, it's just the way that it is. So I, I could probably count, I, you know, I, I manage quite a few properties. I could probably count less than yeah, maybe there are one or two of the properties that I manage, which is like over 10 properties, each of which have multiple units that has never had a pipe leak in, in the time that I managed it. And it doesn't matter if the pipes are new or old or whatever. It's just the way that it happens. So does it happen every day? No, but it does happen. So even things that are infrequent are going to happen sometimes. Doesn't matter how old, how young, what the status is, whatever. So the only way, I mean, if you really, really, really want to control your maintenance issues is to do preventative maintenance. And I would say, do it yourself. Don't rely on a previous property owner to have done quote unquote preventative maintenance, because as Ryan mentioned, even properties that are newly renovated, you have no idea the standards that the you know previous contractor, construction person, whatever used to apply to it. If you want to get it done, then 
be preventative yourself, but I would say do it yourself and make sure it's done right. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy not to mention the idea of CapEx capital, putting aside a capital reserve. You know, a lot of the things that we're doing here when they're smaller deals, we're looking just a year one. So renovation to lease up through through a full year, year and a half. But even with something as small as that to looking at something over a 10-year exit, you've got to have some sort of proportion put aside of your of your income put aside to address these possible concerns. Yeah. So yeah. I, that, that's, a, that's a, a great point to bring up as well. The, the way that I always think about properties um, whether I own them or manage them is that there will be a pool of money and you can call it like an emergency fund or a capital reserve fund or repair fund or whatever you want to call it. That is, is usually at least equal to the deductible of the, the insurance that you have in the property, but oftentimes is larger. And, and at least I would su- suggest to be larger because for various reasons, you might not want to make an insurance claim or your whatever issue might not be covered in insurance. But long story short is that for the first year or two of the property, if you're thinking about a property as like a cash flow machine, I the way that I operate and would suggest operating is taking the income that you're generating from the property, your your net operating income, and putting it into a separate fund or you know a bank account for the property and waiting until that reaches a certain amount. Maybe it's one percent of the purchase price, two percent of the purchase price, the value, whatever you want to use. You know, for me and a lot of two family properties, it's often like ten grand or something around there. And don't touch that money at all until it gets to that point. Once it, you know, matures beyond 10 grand, start making distributions to yourself or to your investors or whatever it might be, but keep the money in there so that, you know, uh, on a rainy day, if you have like, in, like what happened to me this year, I had a, a $7,000 expense just come out of nowhere. Well, I had $10,000 in my account. So yeah, my account's now down to $3,000, but I didn't have to, you know, go into my credit card saving, you know, whatever it might be. I just had the money sitting right there and I didn't make an insurance claim for other reasons that we can get into at some other point, but, but it's nice to have that security. So that's, I think I would highly advocate it could touch us back to the point before about not being undercapitalized when buying a property. This is not being undercapitalized when maintaining a property going forward. That's a great point. And I think if you want to understand why we don't always believe in NOI when we see one, or we don't always be- believe the numbers that a broker or a wholesaler or another investor is showing to us or um, me <laughs> or, or Ben, if you want to understand why we're maybe skeptical about the numbers that we see, it's because if you go through each and every one of these line items, there is a certain artistry that goes into arriving at a particular number. And that doesn't mean that there's a quote unquote right way to do it. It just means that there are different ways to do it. And whatever way you choose should be supported with, with, you know, the right assumptions and the right support. So to recap, on the income side, we have rents, we have vacancy. Rents are going to vary based on what your rental comparables suggest. Vacancy is going to vary based on what you perceive as market vacancy and market economic vacancy. And then on the expense side, we've got real estate taxes, which may or may not be underassessed, which may reassess at some point. And every investor is going to have a different interpretation of what quote unquote market taxes are going to look like. We've got insurance, which is going to consist of general liability, may consist of flood insurance, may consist of uh, builder's risks, builder's risk, umbrella coverage. Um, So that's going to be different depending on what your risk tolerance is and, and, you know, who you get your insurance through and what kind of limits and deductibles you want. We have management, which can vary just on the surface based on who your property manager is but also the the management is is directly correlated to what the income is so 
you can see a variety of ways that different investors will have different management numbers underwritten. You have utilities, including both gas and electric and water and sewer. That's going to depend on not just what the mechanical setup is today, but what it will look like in year two, year three, year four, based on that investor's plan. Um, You've got general and administrative expenses, which will vary across the board. I mean, it's quite common that an investor won't even underwrite this at all. Um, You have repairs and maintenance, um, and kind of like tied into that, you may have capital expenditures. So everyone's going to have a different rule of thumb for how they underwrite that. They may go off of historicals. They may have a, a benchmark that they use for a specific type of asset in a specific market. You may have payroll if you're getting into a larger property. Generally, 50 units or above, you may have an on-site, uh, an on-site manager, maybe a full or part-time maintenance person. So payroll numbers are going to be determined by that. You have like snow removal, trash removal. Right. Yeah, there. I would generally roll that into repairs and maintenance, but yeah. those that pest control, all of that is kind of discretionary to an extent. And if you tie all of that together, you have you can see how investor A may have a very different interpretation of what both revenue and expenses and ultimately NOI are going to look like. And those same two investors may have a very different interpretation of what the quote-unquote market cap rate is for that for a property like that in a specific market and thus may, ha- may arrive at a very different valuation of a particular property. And one funny thing to mention too is, I think before I got into real estate and people from afar think this perhaps is that when you look at a property, an investor for the property is going to be able to tell you all these numbers right off the hand, like, oh yeah, my NOI is this and my cap rate is this and I spent this. But in reality, it's not. I mean, yeah. the, 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 these numbers get so fudged and messed up and also these exceptions and weird things that even a well-intentioned property owner might not have very good numbers for this stuff. And even looking at the numbers for a year might not be very relevant because that year could be, for whatever reason, exceptionally bad or good. So even if you were to say, oh, I could just get all these numbers from the prior owner or just ask some investor what the numbers would be, even that alone is not going to necessarily tell you the full story. I've always looked at an in- income and expense forecast or pro forma as an exercise in in highlighting each and every one of these line items that ultimately inform how your property operations are going to look. And to be able to say, hey, what's going to drive taxes, what's going to drive insurance, maintenance, utilities, each and every one of those line items and kind of audit them on a more granular level and then use that to not just come up with numbers, but to come up with an action plan for how to yeah. how to juice that property to juice its fullest extent. Now, one of the things I, I appreciate too, having worked with John and Ryan for a little bit now is exactly that is, you know, and we'll talk very quickly to bookend the segment about what the numbers are at the end for, for one of these smaller deals. But this idea that even when you generate cash on cash and cap rate and your NOI, in some ways, just by delineating your income and expenses as, as specifically and as closely as you can, that may actually be more helpful to inform your decisions on where and when you execute your purchase. And that's something that I've appreciated as we've tried to make action plans for investing, both in places we're experienced in and in, in new frontiers. Um, and so just quickly as a bookend, so once you have everything calculated, right, usually what I'll send to, to Ryan and John is something very very simplistic, actually, something very basic, just to give a snapshot of, of what the quality of the deal looks like. You'll take, to get your NOI, obviously, we talked about it, you'll take your rental, your net rental rev, and you're subtracting your fixed and variable expenses, 
excluding your debt uh, to get your NOI. And then I like to put a, a net cash after debt, or sometimes people just say cash flow after debt service, um, which is the same calculation except including your debt as part of the subtraction to see what the actual annual dollar income is for that year. And it's funny for these very small deals, you know, your cap and your cash on cash tend to be inflated to the point where I oftentimes don't even include it. But for the purpose of, of just an example, let's say, you know, you uh, netted uh, your NOI is 10K and you want to get your cap rate, right? Then if you, the value of the property is $100,000, then you got a 10% cap. And for your cash on cash, let's say your cash flow after debt is 5,000 and your total equity invested uh, is 20,000, then you got a 25% cash on cash. So that's just a quick snapshot to tell you that it sounds pretty healthy, frankly, when you when you look at it from, from an overhead picture. But as you just learned from this episode, when you look at it line item by line item, that'll help to better inform whether or not the deal is really good for you at your terms. Yeah, and just very briefly on debt service. So we've talked, I think, in previous episodes about finance, but not all financing is the same. And it depends a lot on the, it could depend on your personal credit, credit and borrower portfolio. It could depend on the market, it could depend on the type of property that you're buying. So when we're talking about multifamily properties, there's residential debt, there's commercial debt, there's you know private hard money type debt, all sorts of stuff. So those numbers may not impact the NOI calculation that we just talked about, but they do have an impact on your your pocketbook, like your bottom line, the amount of money that you're taking home per month. And that, that in itself could be a very important factor in the investment. So like, like we, we just talked about all these numbers and, and we're, we're talking about as though it's a given that you would really care a lot about NOI and whatever else. But I know a lot of property investors that, um, although maybe they're, they're in a way calculating NOI, all they care about is the amount of money that they put in their pocket every month. And to that end, it's really important to think about your debt service and all these other payments that might be the case. Because if you don't really care about what your, what your return is, but you just want a property that gives you $500 a month, because to you that means financial freedom or that means a vacation or whatever else, then definitely, absolutely um, look at debt service and everything else to come up with that number for you. And just to that point, I mean, I remember, you know, I went to a real estate program and I had professors who would just, I mean, hammer home, you know, the, the, basically the only thing you should care about is covering your debt service. And if you're covering your debt service, you're quote unquote making money. And it's obviously not that simple, but that's where you get into other metrics like equity multiple and, and IRR on, on bigger deals, which could help inform your opinions. Uh, guys, can't wait to, to continue on with, to the next episode. Thanks guys for your time and expertise as always. For the folks listening at home, make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast to reach out to us on the Brick by Brick, that's Brick X Brick Facebook, and make sure to listen to us on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening.